Thanks for listening to the KC Morning Show. January 11, 1970, victory belonged to Hank Stram and his Kansas City Chiefs. TV9 News special report, close up the flood of 77. From the Kemper Arena in Kansas City, Missouri, it's Milwaukee Bucks against the Kansas City Kings. Now Kansas Cityans must decide what happens next. What is to follow the city's Holy Week riots? I am here at the American Royal World Series of Barbecue. Daryl Motley awaits, and the Kansas City Royals are world champions. Professor Harvey K. He's the Professor Emeritus of Democracy and Justice at the University of Wisconsin-Green Bay. My friend, I have been looking forward to this chat since you responded to that DM long time ago. A little Twitter guy over here trying to talk to a professor who I thought was pretty cool. The minute you said, hey, let's do a thing, I was hoping that we could get a chance to talk about this. What do you even want to call it? This moment in history? You can't call it a speech, necessarily. You can't just call it a sermon. It's just a moment what to the slave is the 4th of july by the great frederick douglas a hero of mine and i'm sure a hero of yours as well professor harvey k definitely 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 and by the way don't undersell yourself as i understand it you have the number one podcast in kansas city well stop it some more professor k stop it some more by popular acclaim (laughs) hey but listen because this is a kansas city show in spite of my being here in Green Bay, Wisconsin. And by the way, tonight's a big game and people will be hearing this tomorrow. I want everyone in Kansas City to know that I really felt bad for you last night. I mean, I really did, especially because you're running back, Edward Zelaire. He played and studied at LSU. And since I did my PhD at LSU, I have a special affection for all of those folks who come out of LSU to wherever they go. Otherwise, I can't say that I would have had a lot of affection for Kansas City last night. Let's let's all agree that we've gotten our one bummer games out of the way. I would love to see Packers v Chiefs in the Super Bowl. Aaron Rodgers taking on Patrick Mahomes. Come on, I would love to watch that. That would be something. Oh, Professor K, call it the State Farm Showdown. There it is. Yeah, right. Well, let's call our talk of the State Farm Showdown. Maybe we can get some money out of it. This is why we're friends. You get me. You get me, Professor K. I get you. You bet I do. And you get this man who we're talking about here today, Frederick Douglass. I mean, where do you even want to start? Can you give us some background? It's really an amazing story. We start from the fact that he was, if not the finest orator of the 19th century, he was at least one of the top two or three orators of the 19th century. And I'm willing to bet, though I wasn't present to hear him, I'm willing to bet he was probably the greatest. And I can tell you that the speech we're going to address today, What to the Slave is the Fourth of July, is clearly one of the greatest speeches in American history. Allowing for the fact that I absolutely adore Lincoln's words and I adore FDR's words and so on and so forth, at least among the non-presidents, this has got to be one of the top speeches. He was a slave. He was born a slave and he spent his youth as a slave in Maryland. And what's really fascinating is what happened that as a boy and a a teenager, as 
as a slave, he discovered the power of words. And he's really not unlike Thomas Paine in many ways as an autodidact, but even more phenomenally when you think about the fact that he was a slave. And in fact, slaveholders were absolutely determined not to have their slaves read because they were afraid they might get ideas. Frederick Douglass recognized that if they didn't want him to learn how to read, sure as hell, he was going to learn how to read. And what's even more interesting in that sense is the book by which he taught himself to read also taught him how to orate because the book was the Columbian Orator, which was a set of texts that I assume boys, I don't know about girls being trained to speak in any way. They weren't usually allowed to even give public addresses, but he taught himself to read with this collection of speeches of rhetoric, you might say. So then even as a child or young, very young man, he's learning how to address the world, how to speak up. Now, it's also the case that he ended up resisting at just about every turn his masters, and he he was determined not to endure slavery. And about 1838, still very young, he escaped from Maryland to New York City by dressing up as a free black sailor and secured a position on one of the boats. And off he went and he landed in New York City. And in New York City, he connected with abolitionists and what people often call the sort of the Underground Railroad. And from there out, it's really the case that he becomes an abolitionist of the first order. Now, let me explain what I mean by that. It doesn't take long in the course of those years for him to become connected with the most famous abolitionist of his day and probably the most famous abolitionist in history, William Lloyd Garrison. Garrison's ideas were very interesting and also ones that I wouldn't have agreed with myself. I agreed with him about the abolition of slavery. Okay. And I have little doubt that Garrison in some ways was influenced by Thomas Paine because on the masthead of his own newspaper, he actually had a line that seems to come straight out of, I believe, Rights of Man by Thomas Paine. But in any case, Garrison, you might say, did not believe in politics. And he was a radical. I mean, he was truly a radical, but he believed that the abolitionist cause should be pursued by way of what was then called moral suasion. Take the whole idea of abolition, articulate it, and literally convert people to be antagonistic, hostile, and determined to bring an end to slavery. He did not want to involve himself in politics, party politics to any extent. He also had another interesting argument that he was so committed to the idea of the immorality of slavery, which, again, I would fully have subscribed to that, and I would have done so in terms of the Bible, in terms of uh, Thomas Paine's arguments, in terms of the Declaration itself, which will come into play, as you'll see. But Garrison was so anti-Constitution because he believed the Constitution was a slaveholder's document. And he was prepared, if it took breaking up the Union to bring an end to slavery, that was okay with him. What he meant by that is the northern states should not even be associated with the slaveholding South. And so he was would have been more than willing to see the secession occur. Though, let's face it, a secession would not have brought an end to slavery in the South. Well, it becomes the case that, that Douglas becomes a Garrisonian. He becomes one of their leading lecturers or speakers. And he would travel throughout New England and out to the West in the free states, and he would give abolitionist speeches. Now, what happens is he travels over to England, I guess it was the early to mid-1840s, 
And while he's there, he's giving abolitionist speeches throughout the country. He actually enjoys being in England, particularly because it was a relief not to fear the possibility of being captured and sent back to Maryland. By the way, later there are there's a couple, the AULDS, the Olds, who actually advance money to officially buy his freedom. And I believe he goes south and himself brings out of Maryland his wife. Now, this is also a period of time in which he is constantly educating himself further in the American story and questions of politics, despite his guarantee. Parisonian antipathy to politics. And he moves, I think it's around 1850, to Rochester, New York, where he establishes a newspaper. The newspaper is called the North Star. And it may well be that the move to Rochester is indicative of his separating himself from the Garrisonians, because it's around this time that it becomes quite apparent that he has changed his mind on Garrison and the movement. He doesn't cease to respect Garrison. It's more the case that he comes to believe no longer in the moral suasion form of abolitionist. And he becomes all the more what you would call a political abolitionist, which means, by the way, he's determined to influence politics and secure a political route to bring an end to slavery. But even more interesting is he changes his understanding of America's founding documents. He becomes, if you like, enamored, really embraces the arguments of the Declaration of Independence. He's been reading works from the 18th century Enlightenment and, of course, the texts of the American Revolution. There's a book by James Calico called Frederick Douglass and the Fourth of July. And he makes the argument, and I think other biographers might well have as well. He makes the argument that if Garrison is, if you like, the father in some ways of Douglas regarding abolition, that Garrett Smith, who's a white abolitionist and one of the founders of the Liberty Party, an anti-slavery party, that this man, Smith, that he becomes the mentor of Douglas and moves Douglas, converts him to this political abolitionism and a new way of reading the Constitution. This is really an important moment. What happens is that Douglas has little trouble embracing the Declaration in spite of it having been written by Jefferson. He refuses to disavow, we hold these truths to be self-evident. All men are created equal, endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. Among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Well, Garrett Smith influences him to the point or educates him to the point of seeing not only the Declaration, but all the more the Constitution as not a slavery document in this way. First of all, slavery itself is never really mentioned in in the founding document, which is to say the founders presumably, as the argument has been made, this word isn't as powerful as it should be, are embarrassed by slavery. At least the significant framers of the Constitution were embarrassed by slavery. And and even Jefferson, as we indicated a a couple of weeks ago with the Declaration, despised slavery, even if he was prepared to hold slaves himself. So what happens is that Douglas reads the Constitution as Garrett Smith would have him read it, as basically part of the series of texts that proclaims the American promise. First of all, by reading the preamble. That's crucial. Also by the fact that it does not refer to African-Americans as slaves. It refers to, you know, I think the three-fifths clause, which doesn't deny the presence of slaves and actually counts the slaves as at least part of the population. So to Douglas, he's saying, well, you know what? I can work with this. There's something at least I can work with here work with and indeed argue standing upon that text itself. You bet. Exactly. So here's now Douglas in 1850, early 1850s, with a whole new understanding of the American story, or if not the American story, more importantly, the American 
promise. And that's the grounds upon which I would readily defend the American story itself. Okay, so let's turn to this speech. That's worth noting. He delivers this speech. It's called the 4th of July, but he delivers on July 5th, the day after. He delivers it in Rochester in a building called Corinthian Hall. I don't know if the hall is still there, but Corinthian Hall. And the audience is made up of five to six hundred abolitionists or friends of abolitionism. I can't tell you. I honestly I should know this, but I can't tell you how many of the folks in the room were African-American of the five or six hundred. But it's clear that that Douglas is talking to a white audience in the way he goes about presenting this. By the way, I'll just say that what Douglas is doing when he presents his own readings of these documents, especially the Constitution and the Declaration, is he's doing what we would call a textual interpretation. As Garrett Smith put it, the words are there and they've become, if you like, the foundation of the United States. The author's intent doesn't matter. It's the words themselves that render the promise, not the mind necessarily and intention of the author. So let's have a look. And as people will see, you and I are going to share a bit of the of the readings themselves. I kind of like it. I was caught off guard week two. Here we are week five or six. I'm, I kind of think we got a good thing going, Professor K. Thank you. I do too. So here we are. What to the slave is the 4th of July? Hartzell, you know, I think there's a particular line in there that we should start with. And I'll hand it over to you. The line that begins this for the purpose of this celebration. This for the purpose of this celebration is the 4th of July. It is the birthday of your national independence and of your political freedom. This, to you, is what the Passover was to the emancipated people of God. It carries your minds back to the day and to the act of your great deliverance and to the signs and to the wonders associated with that act and that day. This celebration also marks the beginning of another year of your national life and reminds you that the Republic of America is now 76 years old. I am glad, fellow citizens, that your nation is so young, 76 years. Though a good old age for a man is but a mere speck in the life of a nation. Three score years and ten is the allotted time for individual men, but nations number their years by thousands. According to this fact, you are, even now, only in the beginning of your national career, still lingering in the period of childhood, I repeat, I am glad this is so. There is hope in this thought, and hope is much needed. Under the dark clouds which lower above the horizon, the eye of the reformer is met with angry flashes portending disastrous times. But his heart may well beat lighter at the thought that America is young and that she is still in the impressible stage of her existence. May he not hope that high lessons of wisdom, of justice, and of truth will yet give direction to her destiny? Were the nation older, the patriot's heart might be sadder and the reformer's brow heavier, its future might be shrouded in gloom and the hope of its prophets go out in sorrow. There is consolation in the thought that America is young. Excellent. So for a start, as much as he's, we will see, he goes on to be very much an antagonist of the American story as it's unfolding. He's warning the reader or advising the reader. I don't know if the readers could remember what he said at the beginning after the lambasting he's going to offer that he actually starts off on a note of hope. You know, Hartzell, I'll mention this is a good time to do so. So every year in my class called Democracy and Justice 101, that we would tell the students in the days before they were going to read this that they had to read the text, all of it, it's not long, read the whole text, make notes on it, come in prepared to talk about it, and to answer this question. Is Frederick Douglass an antagonistic figure? Is he an antagonist to the United States or a patriot of the United States? The answer actually becomes evident 
in the final pages, though I think it's hinted at in the early paragraphs, there were always those students who came in convinced that he was an antagonist. And it would always be the case that they had not read all the way through the text. <laughs> it was the easiest thing to do an A grade and an F grade that I've ever done with students. It's like social criticism you direct at the state of affairs. And as Douglas does so wonderfully, you lambaste exploitation, oppression, inequality. That's the role of a man such as Douglas or a woman such as Elizabeth Cady Stanton and others. But then the question is, you have to still ask yourself, is there a way that this story, that these people themselves, based on what they have already done, can be engaged in radical transformation? And if a leftist can't see that, then there's not much hope. Why bother to be a leftist? I mean, why? It will continue, okay? Some paragraphs later, Douglas says to his audience of five 600 people. If you heard what Hartzell had to say, you will hear the fact that in one moment, he's talking about fellow citizens, like we're in this together. At another moment, he'll say your nation or your independence or your founders. And what he's doing is he's forcing people's minds to shake a little bit because his argument would be the declaration and the constitution apply to me. I am part of we the people by my understanding of the Constitution, a citizen. We are fellow citizens. However, the history as it has been pursued so far has denied that of me. And thus, in many ways, he's saying your independence and the contradiction between the fellow citizens and the your is really important in the course of this sermon. And he does it regularly throughout. And I think that's something that people should note. So here's this paragraph as well that we might want to call our attention to. Pride and patriotism, not less than gratitude, prompt you to celebrate and to hold it in perpetual remembrance. That is, you know, the 4th of July, the great fact of your nation's history, he says. I have said that the Declaration of Independence is the ring bolt to the chain of your nation's destiny. So indeed, I regard it. The principles contained in that instrument are saving principles. Stand by those principles. Be true to them on all occasions, in all places, against all foes, and at whatever cost. In other words, he is taking his firm stand on the very text and the date celebrated that day before he's delivering this speech. But that doesn't mean at all any sense of satisfaction on his part, and he will move soon to chastise. He says, fellow citizens, I am not wanting in respect for the fathers of this republic. The signers of the Declaration of Independence were brave men. They were great men too. And he spends the rest of that paragraph celebrating them as brave, great, you know, pursuing the great greatest of deeds. But he's going to start to shift. Hartzell, right, so why don't you take that next paragraph? They love their country better than their own private interest. And though this is not the highest form of human excellence, and will concede that it is a rare virtue and that when it is exhibited, it ought to command respect. He who will intelligently lay down his life for his country is a man whom it is not in human nature to despise. Your fathers stake their lives, their fortunes, and their sacred honor on the cause of their country. In their admiration of liberty, they lost sight of all other interests. Yes, so he once again is saying your fathers. And notice in their admiration, of liberty, they lost sight of all other interests. That's, a, if you like, a marker. Things are going to change in his rhetoric. He is going to now become the harshest of social critics. We have to do with the past only as we can make it useful to the present and to the future. 
to all inspiring motives, to noble deeds, which can be gained from the past, we are welcome. But now is the time, the important time. Your fathers have lived, died, and have done their work and have done much of it well. You live and must die, and you must do your work. You have no right to enjoy a child's share in the labor of your fathers unless your children are to be blessed by your labors. You have no right to wear out and waste the hard-earned fame of your fathers to cover your indolence. So here we go. Arsul, I'm going to just point you to the paragraph that begins, fellow citizens. Fellow citizens, pardon me, allow me to ask, Why am I called upon to speak here today? What have I, or those I represent, to do with your national independence? Are the great principles of political freedom and of natural justice embodied in that Declaration of Independence extended to us? And I am, therefore, called upon to bring our humble offering to that national altar and to confess the benefits and express devout gratitude for the blessings resulting from your independence to us? This is a challenging question. This is that real hard turning point because he's saying, why am I called upon to speak here today? What have I or those I represent to do with your national independence, your national independence, even as he's just said, fellow citizens. This is brilliant rhetoric, absolutely brilliant rhetoric. Let's skip a bit because we could be here all day and only Frederick Douglass would be worth listening to all day. But go on to that sentence where he asks the next question. Do you mean citizens? Do you mean citizens to mock me by asking me to speak today? If so, there is a parallel to your conduct. And let me warn you that it is dangerous to copy the example of a nation whose crimes, lowering up to heaven, were thrown down by the breath of the Almighty, burying that nation in irrecoverable ruin. I can, today, take up the plaintive lament of a peeled and woe-smitten people. Fellow citizens, above your national tumultuous joy, I hear the mournful wail of millions whose chains, heavy and grievous yesterday, are today rendered more intolerable by the jubilee shouts that reach them. If I do forget, if I do not faithfully remember those bleeding children of sorrow this day, may my right hand forget their cunning, and may my tongue cleave to the roof of my mouth. To forget them, to pass lightly over their wrongs, and to chime in with the popular theme would be treason, most scandalous and shocking, and would make me a reproach before God and the world. My subject, then, fellow citizens, is American slavery. Whether we turn to the declaration of the past or to the professions of the present, the conduct of the nation seems equally hideous and revolting. America is false to the past, false to the present, and solemnly binds herself to be false to the future. Standing with God and the crushed and bleeding slave on this occasion, I will, in the name of humanity, which is outraged, in the name of liberty, which is fettered, in the name of the Constitution and the Bible, which are disregarded and trampled upon, dare to call in question and to denounce with all emphasis I can command everything that serves to perpetuate slavery, the great sin and shame of America. I will not equivocate, I will not excuse. I will use the severest language I can. And yet not one word shall escape me that any man whose judgment is not blinded by prejudice or who is not at heart a slaveholder shall not confess to be right and just. For the present, it is enough to affirm the equal manhood of the Negro race. Is it not astonishing that while we are plowing, planting and reaping, using all kinds of mechanical tools, erecting houses, constructing bridges, building ships, working in metals of brass, iron, copper, silver, and gold, that while we are reading, writing, and ciphering, acting as clerks, merchants, and secretaries, having among us lawyers, doctors, ministers, 
poets, authors, editors, orators, and teachers, that while we are engaged in all manner of enterprises common to other men, digging gold in California, capturing the whale in the Pacific, feeding sheep and cattle on the hillside, living, moving, acting, thinking, planning, living in families as husbands, wives, and children, and above all, confessing and worshiping the Christian's God and looking hopefully for life and immortality beyond the grave. We are all called upon to prove that we are men. And if you'll allow me, I'll pick up on the next paragraph. Would you have me argue that man is entitled to liberty, that he is the rightful owner of his own body? You have already declared it. Must I argue the wrongfulness of slavery? Is that a question for Republicans? Is it to be settled by the rules of logic and argumentation as a matter beset with great difficulty, involving a doubtful application of the principle of justice hard to be understood? How should I look today in the presence of Americans dividing and subdividing a discourse to show that men have a natural right to freedom? Speaking of it relatively and positively, negatively and affirmatively, to do so would be to make myself ridiculous and lo, offer an insult to your understanding. There is not a man beneath the canopy of heaven that does not know that slavery is wrong for him. Now, there's a lot more that follows, okay? There's a discussion of the internal slave trade and the tragedies and horrors of it. And then he actually does a very interesting thing, and it probably shocked a lot of people. He turns to the question of religious liberty and more specifically that goes on to the churches of the United States. And he says, but the church of this country is not only indifferent to the wrongs of the slave, it actually takes sides with the oppressors. It has made itself the bulwark of American slavery and the shield of American slave hunters. Many of its most eloquent divines who stand as the very lights of the church have shamelessly given the sanction of religion and the Bible to the whole slave system. And then why don't you pick up on the next paragraph? For my part, I would say, welcome infidelity, welcome atheism, welcome anything in preference to the gospel as preached by those divines. They convert the very name of religion into the engine of tyranny and barbarous cruelty and serve to confirm more infidels in this age than all the infidel writings of Thomas Paine, Voltaire, and Bolingbroke put together. These ministers make religion a cold and flinty-hearted thing, having neither principles of right action nor bowels of compassion. They strip the love of God of its beauty and leave the throne of religion a huge, horrible, repulsive form. It is a religion of oppressors, tyrants, man-stealers, and thugs. The American church is guilty when viewed in connection with what it is doing to uphold slavery, but it is superlatively guilty when viewed in connection with its ability to abolish slavery. The sin of which it is guilty is one of omission as well as of commission. You know, he does an interesting thing here at the end of this section. He actually turns and offers his idea, his vision of what the churches and the churchmen and women should be doing. And he says, let the religious press, the pulpit, the Sunday school, the conference meeting, the great ecclesiastical missionary Bible and tract associations of the land array their immense powers against slavery and slaveholding. And the whole system of crime and blood would be scattered to the winds. And that they do not do this involves them in the most awful responsibility of which the mind 
can conceive. This kind of assault on the state of America probably made him no enemies in the audience that he was addressing, though probably unsettled them because of the power of his words and the fact that he was so scornful of the churches as they existed. But he then, towards the very end, he shifts again. He doesn't want to leave his audience and all those who will be reading this believing that there's little chance of redeeming anything from this American tale. And he begins, I'll just start here and then I'll let you take over. Allow me to say in conclusion, notwithstanding the dark picture I have this day presented of the state of the nation, I do not despair of this country. I want to read that again because this is the thing that students miss sometimes when they read it. Allow me to say in conclusion, notwithstanding the dark picture I have this day presented of the state of the nation, I do not despair of this country. Take it away. There are forces in operation which must inevitably work the downfall of slavery. The arm of the Lord is not shortened, and the doom of slavery is certain. I, therefore, leave off where I began, with hope. While drawing encouragement from the Declaration of Independence, the great principles it contains, and the genius of American institutions, my spirit is also cheered by the obvious tendencies of the age. Nations do not now stand in the same relation to each other that they did ages ago. No nation can now shut itself up from the surrounding world or trot round in the same old path of its fathers without interference. The time was when such could be done. Long established customs of hurtful character could formally fence themselves in and do their evil work with social impunity. I'm going to call attention to one paragraph in particular. Lincoln probably had read the abolitionist speech. He knew them, okay? He wasn't an abolitionist officially himself in any way, though he hated slavery and would do everything in his power to bring it to an end. But if you remember what Douglas was saying there in 1852 about the fact that the United States doesn't stand on its own, it's as if the whole world is becoming better connected and ideas are exchanged internationally. When we get to Lincoln, even though we won't read the whole speech, there's a speech of his, which is absolutely fundamental, which begins, fellow citizens, we cannot escape history. That sort of echoes pretty much Douglas's words. But it's also the case that Douglas, in his own way, is reaching back to the Declaration. He, he echoes the Declaration to the extent it was like, you know, the opinions of mankind in that opening part of the Declaration. So this is all part of that continuing, if you like, continuing oration of Americans and their promise. Here's Douglas, born into slavery, teaches himself not only to read, but also to orate and makes his way in the world to the point where he becomes this great orator speaking in these truly remarkable words, truly remarkable words, which on the one hand begins on a note of hope and promise, shifts gears and becomes accusatorial, your nation, your independence, your fathers. And yet it comes back to the very hope where he began in the Declaration and the Constitution. This is Douglas not retreating from the horrors of American history, but laying hold of the very American promise and challenging himself and his fellow citizens to recognize their moral, political, and historical obligation. It's one of my favorite pieces of history. My football coach, you know, he always used to say, we break you down to build you back up, son. And this is one of those, this is one of those words where Frederick Douglass, he's going to break you down a bit. But it's all in that promise that's going to build us back up. And I don't know, I get goosebumps every time I get a chance to look at this. And we could come back to this every 4th of July. But honestly, we could come back to this every day of the year, Professor K. I have little doubt of that. Little doubt of that. But then again, 
Lincoln awaits. As we continue to take back America, my friend, we're going to do a bit of a schedule change because you're going out of town. I'll be down in your state of Missouri, as a matter of fact, but on the eastern edge. May need to make a trip down I-70, Professor K. I don't know. If you got some free time, you let me know. We may make this happen. Well, the problem is I don't have enough free time to make a drive (laughs) all the way across the state of Missouri worthwhile because we're going down to visit the family and my grandson. So crazy schedules. It is that time of year, my friend. What we can say is that we're getting Lincoln next week probably thursday but lincoln next week and not to disappoint anyone but kitty at holy hearts will likely be with us sometime in the next couple of weeks in case you find our voices inadequate (laughs) can i just say to pull back the curtain she had a blast she loved it i knew she would i really did professor harvey k where can these folks find you on the internet my friend what's your handles at harvey initial j K, K-A-Y with an E on the end. And I look forward to hearing from everyone who has any inclination to either ask me a question or challenge me. My brother, it is always a blast as we take back America. This has just been a pleasure getting to know you and getting a chance to dive in to Frederick Douglass on a Monday with one of my favorite professors. This is awesome. Thank you for doing this with us, my friend. Thank you. Keep it up. You're doing great. You're listening to the KC Morning Show.